Hey. What is up, everybody? AJ Capasso here with Crime Documentaries. What's going on, brother? I was waiting. I was waiting for that. Oh, okay. I was wondering why you were smiling at me, and I'm yeah, like, Yeah, I was waiting. I was waiting. That's how we're going to start our show from what since last week or the week before when you were like really pumped. I like. Oh no, yeah, so that's why I was waiting. I didn't know what you yeah. want me to do. I was, yeah, I was waiting for it. I know. Yeah, I know. that's. I don't that's have my cool. buttons today. I don't have my buttons today. Sorry. No, why not? I just I didn't have time to set it up, so I was like, let me just hop on quick and, you know, get going. You know what time I start setting up for this show? I normally set up like an hour early, but like yeah. I just today I was just so lazy. I was enjoying my day. Yeah. Uh. So I. Normally, when we're going to be doing a video like we're doing tonight, um, yeah. like the night before, I usually do everything with the video that I need to do. And then mm -hmm. everything's done and then ready to go. But I did it today, hoping that I wasn't going to have any problems. Because last week, I had problems with the the video. This week, it doesn't look like we have any problems. It's It's good. Sure. So, And I added a few little things to it this time that oh, i've oh, never yeah. added before uh oh <laughs> yeah. uh oh i can't wait to see the surprise <laughs> yeah. i'm excited i added uh i added two things to it that I'd, i've never added before so this was a uh this was a first this is um, gonna be um, new well it's nothing too special it's just yeah, yeah. you know a couple a couple of symbols in there that mm -hmm. you know encourage people to do certain mm -hmm. things you know yep. So, you know, we were talking before we came uh, live, and I'll be honest, like I said to you in the in the live, or before we came up live, I said, you know what, I last week last week's show was really really good, and I think okay, well, it's going to be hard to top last week's show. Yeah, what? <laughs> what? I think you might have done. Yeah, then I find this one. And, you know, what's really interesting is if you go over to YouTube and you type in uh, try, or crime uh, documentaries or uh, crimes or true crimes or whatever, whatever, killers, whatever you want to do. You know, what's really scary is the list is endless. Oh, it's disgusting. It's endless the amount of killers, kidnappers, all those things. Like it was like honestly, it was endless. Like and it was going back years. Like I was going back years in, in videos. Like it wouldn't stop. I I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It was just, it wouldn't stop. It's like wow. my God, like the world we live in is like yeah. Yep. absolutely disgusting to be honest and and then i i come to this fella <laughs> yeah he's beyond crazy like beyond, beyond crazy, crazy. <laughs> and uh now obviously there's not a lot of video on this guy so it's mostly mm. people talking about this guy and what he yeah. did but if anybody knows about this guy this guy was very sick very sick and the reasons he was doing it was 
mind-boggling. Like, the only reason why he was killing these people was for profit. Like, that's what I can't get over. Yeah, people do some crazy things for money. And, no, but it's the way he killed them. Yeah. That was beyond anything I could comprehend. Like, and then me and AJ were talking about the, talking about this guy before we came up and we said, this guy's called the acid bath killer. And I'm my mind, maybe they'll talk about it in this video, but my mind is still boggling on how this guy was able to get this much acid. Like, where did he get it from? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Was it that available back in those days? Like, you can't get this stuff. Well, I guess you can get it, Ken. Like, well, I mean, I well, think about can. it. Well, think about it, though. Like, the mob used to use stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, think about it. I mean, it depends who you have as for resources. If you think about it, this guy may have had somebody that was completely, you know, on the other end that was helping him. You know, who knows? I mean, he's the only one that we know of that's the serial killer in this. Who knows what else was connected that it was never found out? I. Like, I guess, I guess if you own a, maybe, I, I can't even think of what you could own in order to have this stuff. Yeah. Like, so uh, maybe a landscaping business? Like, do landscapers know. use sulfuric acid? I don't know. Do they use it in their... I mean, I've never personally, but like, I mean, I've done landscaping, but I, I don't know. Like, I could be totally wrong. Like, big com- bigger companies, totally. I don't know. Do they not use it in fertilizer? Uh, could be. I'm sure they use it a lot of things. Anyways. So, yeah. other than that, before we get to the video, I'm always slipping in this chair. Like, I bought this chair. You yeah, know, I feel the same way sometimes, though. I, I'm like, always- I bought this chair two months ago because my other one mysteriously broke. Like oh. thick plastic, and I'm uh-huh. not, like I'm not an overly big guy. Like yeah. I'm only five eleven, and you know I'm one ninety, I think. Yeah. And so, but it was thick plastic, and how it broke is beyond me. But uh, didn't help your didn't help yourself at all. You know, no, nah, it didn't help my self esteem. No. Yeah, it didn't, didn't help, help yourself no. at all. No, at not all. at all. No. Nope. Yeah. So, but uh, what's going on with you before we get started? Not much, man. So if anyone has seen in the U.S. Um, or anyone who's not in the U.S., we had a execution happen um, yesterday or the day before. Uh, it was in Alabama, and there was a guy, I forget his name offhand, unfortunately, but he he killed a person, and Alabama sent him to death, and he finally came up, and they used a new method. And I think it was hydrogen gas, I believe is what I told you in the back, and I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But they thought it was supposed to be the most humane way most you know easiest way for anyone to ever you know get killed and on death row or whatever this new new method and um the spiritual advisor has been on the news and are all speaking out about everything how are you jk and um a lot of people that witnessed it are speaking out about it because this man was they started the execution at like 7 56 p.m or 7 59 p.m and then they didn't he didn't get pronounced dead until 8 25 p.m and they said that they watched him thrash around like stuff was coming out of his mouth into the mask where he was just suffocating. His head kept going up, but they had the mask strapped to the gurney. So his head would only go up so far, but he mm. was just jerking violently. And his whole family had to watch that. I mean, granted, yeah, okay, he took a life. I get that. 
and whatever, okay? But are we really that cruel where we're going to go and do something that screwed up to some people? I mean, don't get me wrong. If someone hurts my family, which I'm dealing with something right now with something like that, not family-wise, but close to it. And, you know, it's like, yeah, I get I get it. You know, you want your payback. You want them to suffer. But, you know, how, how, how bad do we have to be back? You know what I mean? Does it really, does, are we trying to prove a point here? I mean, I get the death penalty. It's to keep bad people to understand, like, you deserve, you're going to get what you deserve. But also in the same way, it's like how we're doing it. It's like, I don't know. You know, it gets me kind of, gets me kind of nervous. Like, are we going down a sick end? You know what I mean? Like, are we worse than the people that we're putting into these things? You know what I mean? You know, like if it's someone who's killed tons of people or something like that, I totally get it. But if you kill one person and, I don't know what the whole situation is on whole thing, but he killed the lady and I'm sure he did some messed up things probably to her. But mm -hmm. the whole point of the matter is that he killed one person. And do we really have to be as sick as them is my point, you know? Yeah. So my question to you is, it doesn't sound very humane at all, um, but what wouldn't lethal injection be the. That's what it was the most humane way as we know. Well, that's right what now. I was thinking. Yeah, you put someone to sleep and then you 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 know basically stop their heart overdosing them basically. Wouldn't but, that be the most humane way of? I mean, I'm gonna be honest. When any time that I've had a death, you know, for myself in an overdose situation, it's literally you go to sleep and you like wake up again if you wake up, and if you don't, you go into the next place. But you know that's basically how it is. So yeah, I would say that's the most humane way. But then again, you know, do people want to see the, someone who's taken a loved one's life? Do they want to see them suffer? You know, how did the family of the lady feel? Did they feel that they got the justice they deserve or did they feel that that was wrong? You know, like, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen them speak out about it yet, so I don't know. But it's like, I would kind of, you know, in my, my personal opinion, if you hurt my family, I mean, I would hope you would suffer very torturously. But then again, do I want to be that way? You know what I mean? That's really what it comes down to. How bad is your heart? Do you want to end up like these people? Do you want to make, make your heart hardened, you know? Well, that's definitely the difference between states and Canada. We don't have the, we don't have the death penalty anymore. We haven't had it. God, I think, I think, uh, I think it's been since the nineteen sixties or early seventies. Mm. I have to look that up and see. But yeah. it's a hard thing. Me in the audience can look it up for me. When's the last? When did they get rid of the death penalty in Canada? But it's yeah. been like either 60s or 70s or something like that. So, but, uh, you know, it's, it's speaking of 70s and this is way off topic. And I was, I was, I was going through TikTok last night. Do you see the new viral thing that's going around on TikTok? I, dude, I don't TikTok. even know what, what is it now? I can only yeah. imagine. <laughs> it's, it's a man. It's a man by the name of Pastor Bob Joyce. Oh my God. And they think he's Elvis. And they think he's Elvis. Yep. I seen that today. It's so funny you said that. Wow. Yeah. I just watched that moments before coming on here. It's so funny you said I, that. As soon as you said the seven I said the seventies, I thought of that last night. So apparently yeah. this guy is Elvis. And and I tell you, it's it's Those like signature, everything. It's everything, water. the the way he sings, everything, the way he talks, the way he moves. Uh, the way his now the only difference that I found between the two of them, Elvis. Uh, obviously, how old was he when he died? I can't recall. I think uh, he was I'm in not, his forties, right? I think, early fifties. Sure. 
I want to say. I don't know. I don't know. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Well, he'd be he he would be Elvis would be I think he would be 93 right now. Um yeah, but, uh, so um the only difference between the two was in Elvis's early early days before he died, the nose is a little bit different compared to this guy. Yeah. But now, you know, that doesn't mean anything because our face changes. I don't know if you know this. Here's an interesting fact. Do you know that your ears grow as you get older? Yeah. Yeah. They don't stop growing. They don't stop growing. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that is wild. So if you got big ears as a kid, you're screwed when you get older. <laughs> screwed. So, I had but, a friend, man. He was like, like that. I swear to God. I don't know what he looks like today. Never got to see him. <laughs> but I'm sure he's like a satellite now. I swear to God. Probably can hear like a mile away. Hmm. You know, what was it, uh, five months ago, four months ago, the big viral thing was there was a guy, there was a guy, uh, I think there was a guy in Jamaica or something like that, and everybody was saying he was Tupac. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? Now, yeah, now, what was that, four or five months ago? But you know what's so funny about that is that there's still his family, his daughters came forward and, and has acted like, you know, she knows her dad's alive in like Florida or in uh, Brazil or some shit. So it's like, it's really awkward. Ooh. It's like, you know. Ooh. They're family members. Like if you watch interviews, family about members of who? Tupac. Of Tupac, yeah. If yeah. you watch interviews of them, like they're not sad at all, like at all. Like they they're acting like like they are like oh yeah no. And even there's been other famous people that have said it off camera and they've caught people on audio saying oh no man I I know he's still alive he's in Brazil or some shit and he's like they say it all the time and it's like it makes you wonder like is it true yeah. did they really have a double what happened because nobody knows. Look at Michael Jackson. Yeah, well, that's another one. And the weird thing about it, because I was thinking, I was just thinking about that. After he died, I don't know if you've ever seen this video, but apparently after he died, there was a video taken of um, a van going into a cop station and somebody coming out of the back of the van. And they say it's actually Michael. So he was actually still alive. But uh, and this was after his death, like hours after his death that he was yeah. seen coming out of a van. Um, which I, which I think, um, which I, there's uh, a new one. There's a new one. The actress that just passed away. Um, I forget her name offhand, but she was very famous and she, she was like, they thought she was on cocaine and all this stuff. She drove into a house, the car caught fire. And then all of a sudden, like she died, like they pulled her out or whatever. And they said she was dead. They, you saw the, in the, the helicopter footage, you see them pull the body, this black bag of a body out. And all of a sudden, right before they're putting it into the ambulance, it unzips itself and a, per, a lady sits up and it looks just like her. It's Who's the weirdest that? thing. Who's that? I, I got to get the name of the actress. I don't that, know. Is that Anne, Anne Hesh? Yes. Oh my gosh. I think that's her name. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It just happened. Yeah. yeah. It was the one driving crazy down the road, but there's yeah. new footage of this and you have to see it, dude. It's so creepy because it makes you wonder like, do these people with a lot of money, can they, can they go off and do this? You know, can they take their death and do that? And I believe it's possible. I truly do believe it's possible. Yeah, it's interesting. But uh, um, yeah, I, I thought there were so many videos of it last night. I was like every third video was about this this guy. And the more I watched the video, because I remember years ago, there was that special uh, with what's his name? Uh, the guy that played the original Hulk. Yeah. Um, he had a special. It was back in the 80s. Yeah. About uh, how... Uh, Elvis is not really dead. He faked his death. And there were so many, so many things that um, backed it up. 
the first thing there was no death papers no that was the very very first thing no death papers whatsoever none none could be found mm. uh, by the coroner or by anybody for that matter so that wow. was mysterious but uh mm. i tell you this guy he 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 definitely looks like him he definitely it looks like him for sure it yeah it does so and it wouldn't surprise me to be honest but uh uh, you, you just never know with these big stars and they, you know, you wonder if a lot of these stars have faked their death, like Prince or, you know, who, or who was the other one that was recent. Um, and there's some questions I can't recall. Anyhow, we're getting way off topic. Let's get back on topic. Uh, we got this great video, uh, John Hag or John George Hag, uh, the acid, the acid bath killer. Um, and I will let people know he was executed uh, by hanging, which is obviously what we were talking about earlier. Very inhumane, to be honest. But what this guy did, this guy got a. <laughs> this guy should have gotten maybe maybe an acid bath himself. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, anyhow, he was executed uh, uh, obviously uh, by hanging. Uh, the date he was apprehended was 1949. So uh, this is a while ago. But so basically, is there a death? No, there's not. There's no death penalty in Canada. They got rid of it. I, it was either 60s or 70s. If you want to look that up and you can let us know, that'd be great. I think it was the 70s, late 70s. They got rid of it. Might even been earlier than that. I'm not sure. But yeah. uh, so let's play the video and hopefully you guys enjoy this. And this is actually a documentary. So. <laughs> Not like last week's. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one that thinks that funny from last week. No, no, it was funny. I'm, what I was funny, I had my attention real quick. As Nicole just said, I don't think they see us. No, Nicole, we see you definitely. Sorry about that. Oh yeah, because yeah, I put out your comment earlier. See? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Sorry. So there we go. Good. John George Haig was the serial killer from Middle England who killed the middle class. He had no compunction and no conscience whatsoever about killing people to obtain his ends. The sludge at the bottom of the barrels in which he's dissolved these poor people is poured down the drains. You know, he's literally obliterating an entire family. I was just a young boy in the late 1940s, but I can remember the name John George Haig as if it were yesterday. The newspaper headlines were sensationalist, from vampire horror to modern-day Dracula. But the one that was to stick was the acid bath murderer. So was John George Haig a callous fraudster or a killer out for blood? I'm Fred Dynage, and I've been reporting serious crimes for more than 40 years now as a journalist and a television reporter. As the official biographer to the Cray Twins, I know that when it comes to crime, the myth can actually take over from the reality of what actually happened. John George Haig's crimes were some of the most shocking ever seen in Britain. Driven by greed, he killed six people, disposing of their bodies in an appalling manner. Plunging the victims into vats of acid, he left no trace of their remains. John George Haig was born in 1909 in Stamford, Lincolnshire. He was well loved by his parents and was an only child. 
he had a relatively isolated upbringing. Well, I'm keen to talk to experts and key witnesses with an in-depth knowledge of the Hague case. Sadly, of course, many of the key characters have now passed away. But I have managed to track down a man with a keen interest in Hague, David Briffitt. In the 1980s, David spent a lot of time interviewing key witnesses and wrote a book about Hague's atrocities. David, this is amazing because this is the very courtroom in which Hague was tried and convicted. What turned this apparently well-educated and religious man, do you think, to crime? Well, I have a theory about Mr Haig, and uh, I'm pretty sure that he wanted to assume the lifestyle of other people that he uh, admired. And the reason for that can be traced right back to his very strange childhood. Um, his parents were members of the Plymouth Brethren, um, and he was deprived of many things. They didn't celebrate Christmas, and eventually, when he discovered the outside world, he rather liked it, and he wanted to be part of it and he was prepared to go to more or less any lengths to obtain that better lifestyle. At the age of 10, Haig won a musical scholarship to a Catholic school in Wakefield. Even at such a young age, he was described by his teachers as mischievous. What led him then into a life of crime? Well, um, there's evidence to show that when he was at school, um, he was very secretive. Um, he enjoyed playing tricks on people and he learned very early that he could forge people's signatures and he used to forge the, the signatures of teachers and he got a lot of pleasure out of that, having these secrets. And then he gradually moved into petty crime and into forgery. I want to know how Haig's early life of crime led him to become a killer. Professor David Wilson is a leading criminologist and he's taken an in-depth look at the crimes Haig committed. So tell us about the fraud. I mean, how did he get into that? What, what, what was his motivation there? Well, he left school uh, age 17 and worked for a little while in a blue-collar job, but very quickly transferred into white-collar work. And he first comes to the attention of the courts or to the police because he tries to fraudulently sell cars that don't belong to him. So the oh, motivation, psychologists, criminologists would say, his motivations were extrinsic. They were outside of his own personality. His motivation, in other words, was simply to make money. But of course he had the most convincing manner and he could talk anyone round to do anything. He was a wonderful salesman. He could charm the birds out of the trees. He always dressed very well. He liked the best suits. Uh, he had brill creamed hair that was flat, but he had the most penetrating, sparkling blue eyes which many, many people noticed. In 1934, Haig used his charming manner to persuade people to purchase vehicles that didn't exist. It wasn't long before the money was rolling in. Haig wrote many letters documenting his early life and his atrocities. Haig said, I discovered there were easier ways to make a living than to work long hours in an office. I did not ask myself whether I was doing right or wrong. That seemed to be irrelevant. I merely said, this is what I wish to do. 
He always, I think, reading through the lines, felt slightly outside of the culture to which he belonged. And so a lot of his life, it would seem, was about playing a part. So he always wanted to drive fast cars, to look the part, to be fashionable, to have money. He often gives the impression of trying to live above his means. Haig quickly discovered that crime didn't pay. His car scam was uncovered. He was imprisoned for 15 months at Leeds Assizes. On his release, he was soon back to what he considered to be his profession, fraud. One of his major frauds was committed uh, in Surrey uh, and in Sussex. In fact, he opened three offices as a solicitor. He never was a solicitor, of course, but he opened three offices, one in Chantry Lane in London, one in Guildford in Surrey and one in Hastings in Sussex. And he called himself William Cato Adamson. And he had some wonderful headed notepaper printed. And then he began placing advertisements in local newspapers, uh, offering uh, shares for sale. Shares that supposedly had come from the estates of deceased persons. And he was offering them at slightly below the market rate. And of course, people were very attracted to that and began sending in checks to this solicitor. Uh, Haig lived very well off the checks. However, he was caught out because on one of his headed notepapers, he had misspelt the word Guildford, and he had left out the D in the middle. And one of the prospective purchasers spotted that, went to the police, didn't think a solicitor would make a basic error like that, and Haig was ar arrested as a result of that error. Well, according to court records, Haig was imprisoned three times between 1934 and 1943 for theft and fraud, but prison life didn't dampen his desire to make money. He knew if he was to become a part of high society, then he'd have to learn how to commit the perfect crime. Haig's time in prison was far removed from the lavish lifestyle he aspired to. He thought himself a class above the petty criminals that he was now rubbing shoulders with. I'm about to meet a man who knows what life is like in Britain's toughest prisons. Bobby Cummins was convicted of armed robbery and manslaughter. He now runs a charity called Unlock, which helps ex-offenders. And he knows at first hand the experiences you pick up from being around hardened criminals. If you're in prison and you want to leave crime behind, it can be a great place for rehabilitation. If, like Haig, um, you were a prolific offender, if you like, you, you had to injure, you wanted to, to learn about crime. Greatest university in the world is prison because there you can network, there's there people there with different skills. So he would have been planning um, his next move. In prison, Haig learned about the crimes committed in France in 1925 by the double murderer Saray. To avoid capture, Saray disposed of the bodies in sulfuric acid. Haig learned a great deal about the, the British legal system while he was in prison, thanks to books from the prison library brought to him by the Padre. But more importantly, he learned about the uses of sulfuric acid from the prison library books too. So he learned a great deal about crime and a great deal about acids. He would have been told the weakest link is your victim. Because especially in fraud, your face is going up. It's not like if you're an armed robber and you're putting a, a mask over your face or anything like that. With fraud, it's front on. So therefore, the victim can identify you in ID parades, in photographs, that sort of thing. So if you're at the fraud game, there's nine out of ten odds that you're actually going to get nicked for the offence. So they would have said to him, the weakest link is, is, is your victims. 
and in any criminality, what you've got to do is eliminate the weakest link. Haig began formulating a sinister plan, one he would put into action on the day of his release. But to prepare, he needed the assistance of fellow prisoners and access to sulfuric acid. It was during his time in Lincoln Prison that he was given a position in the tinsmith factory. Mm, there he gained go. access to sulfuric acid. He wanted to discover if, like Saray, he could dissolve bone and tissue. He used to bribe other prisoners uh, with small amounts of tobacco. These prisoners were allowed outside the prison walls during the day and they would bring dead field mice back into the prison for Haig. And Haig also stole small amounts of sulfuric acid from the stores. And obviously, while the warders weren't watching, he would line up the jars on a workbench, fill each jar with a small amount of acid, and then drop a mouse into each jar. And then very patiently would sit and watch to see how long it would take a mouse to disintegrate in a certain amount of sulfuric acid. So in other words, he worked out a scientific formula, which he thought maybe later he could apply to a human being. And all he wanted was the opportunity. Tim to exploit. A chance meeting at the Goat Pub in Kensington presented him with the opportunity he'd been looking Can for. Can you imagine the smell? William McSwan had employed Haig as his chauffeur back in the 1930s. They'd become friends, but lost touch when Haig went looking for other work. How close was Haig then to McSwan and vice versa? Well, John Haig and William McSwan were both the same age and they got on very well. And for a period, they became quite close friends. Uh, Haig certainly uh, admired young McSwan's lifestyle because he used to collect the rents of the six McSwan properties in West London. And I think Haig watched him do this job and realised that uh, he was obtaining quite a nice sum of money every week that his family lived on and he wanted that lifestyle. Haig regaled his old boss with tales of his own recent business ventures, although he'd actually been in prison. Over the next few days, they would meet several more times. Haig was just waiting for the perfect moment to put the plans he'd hatched in prison into action. Haig said he had an engineering workshop. McSwan said he had some pinball machines that he wanted repaired, and Haig said he would do the work, and he invited McSwan down to the basement. No one truly knows what happened to William McSwan. Haig's own account recalls that his old friend asked him to look at a pinball machine with his head bent, Haig pulled out a metal bar and killed William McSwan with several heavy blows. Haig was left with the body of his murdered friend. Using the skills he'd learned in prison, he dumped his first victim in acid. He'd stolen an oil drum from an old uh, wartime bomb site, and he got the body of McSwan into the oil drum and then he began the macabre business of filling it with acids. In order to protect Haig from the acids, he uh, developed a very sophisticated uniform, which consisted of a, of a large rubber raincoat, um, rubber gloves that came up to his elbows, uh, long thigh-length wader boots, and on top of that, he had an old leathers butcher's apron. And to protect his nose and his eyes and his mouth from the fumes of the acid, he stole a wartime gas mask. So you can imagine this figure must have been a very, very sinister sight indeed. 
not easy to lift people and put them in vats of, of acid, is it? No, it, 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 it isn't easy at all. And so there's obviously some physiological strength that he needs, as well as the psychological strength to be able to go through the process that he would go through. And that does seem to me to take a certain type of mentality, a certain type of psychology to be able to do so. That ability to compartmentalize his life seems to me to be quite extraordinary. And in Haig's case, is one of the consistent features of his behavior. The first murder. Mm. How momentous would that have been for him? How difficult? What you're talking about now is a con man who's glib-tongued, suave, sophisticated, knows his trade. Now you're going into murder. Totally different ballgame. Killing another human being is one thing. Being able to dispose of the body is another. And be <coughs> able to come to terms with that. Now, if you can come to terms with that, once you've done one, half a dozen ain't too many. Haig had successfully killed and disposed of his friend's body. The problem he now faced was covering up McSwan's disappearance. He went and saw his victim's parents and told them their son had fled to Scotland to avoid conscription. Naturally, they were upset, but they had no reason to disbelieve Haig's story. It was a mistake which was to cost them their lives. Haig began to befriend William McSwan's parents. His trusting manner charmed the couple into employing him as a rent collector. It was the job that their son had been doing before his disappearance. The money he made from them afforded him a good life. Haig's intention was to get hold of the McSwan properties. And he obviously discovered that the deeds of all the properties were in the names of the two senior McSwans. And it was in 1945 that he invited Donald McSwan to come down to the basement. And the story was that their son was making a surprise visit back from Scotland and would be reunited with the father in the basement. It was a dreadful trick to play on this old man. Uh, within a few minutes of Donald McSwan arriving in the basement, he was killed with an iron bar across the back of the head. And only uh, an hour or so, so later, he then invites Amy McSwan to come down to the basement and he kills her in the same fashion. And he had two oil drums standing side by side, ready to dispose of a husband and wife in a single weekend. No one knows just what Amy McSwan saw when she walked into Haig's lair. Did she see her husband dead in front of her? Perhaps she never made it that far. Whatever happened, Haig left that workshop alone. We never ever discover what happens to the McSwans because the sludge at the bottom of the barrels in which he's dissolved these poor people is poured down the drains of London and goes into the Thames. You know, he's literally obliterating an entire family. I find it hard to imagine just how one man could not only kill a whole family, but then also make them disappear. Professor David Wilson has invited me to witness a simple experiment to replicate just how effective Haig's process was. David, tell us what we're seeing here. Well, for any murderer to be successful, he's got to get rid of the body. And in controlled circumstances and using the lovely Jerry, we're going to 
replicate the kinds of behavior that Haig showed with his victims, which were going to use concentrated sulfuric acid, not the body of a person, but a piece of chicken, and see how long it's going to take to dissolve, which is, of course, what Haig did with his victims. Well, that's interesting. Now, of course, remember, it's a microcosm. So we've only got two liters of concentrated sulfuric acid. Haig had three carboys of sulfuric acid, which literally, a carboy is 40 gallons, so he has 120 gallons of this stuff uh, because, of course, he's trying to get rid of a much bigger body than a small piece of chicken. The process of purchasing sulfuric acid is the same today as it was in the 1940s. You can only buy it from a licensed supplier and you need to give a clear reason for its use, not a problem for a fraudster like Haig. He set himself up uh, a bogus business uh, called Union Group Engineering. He hired a basement in the Gloucester Road in London, which was supposedly his workshop. But he began to stockpile quantities of acids. He bought these acids um, by sending off letters. And when he signed a letter, it was from liaison officer, John George Haig. And no questions were asked the delivery took place. Well, the piece of chicken has been in there, what, five minutes and yep. already it's appearing to, if you like, cook. Yes, well, it's going to burn. This is the, the, this is the process of how the, the body fat will disappear. How difficult would it have been for him, do you imagine, to do this for the first time with a, with a human body? Oh, incredibly difficult. Um, most murderers, when they start, if you think of murder almost as a skill, you, well, when you pick up a skill for the first time, you're not very good at it. And of course, most murderers are dealing with a range of emotions that they're going through when they have the control over their victim. Some of them might be excited, some of them might be frightened, some of them might be anxious. But of course, they're learning how to deal with somebody they've got in their complete and utter power, as Haig did. The only people that kill on the spur of the moment are the sort of people that are domestic killers, and we call that the red mist. It's, it's done in anger, they lose their faculties, uh, and they kill. When you actually plan murder, it is the systematic shutting down of your own humanity, if you like, you know? It's the same as when you're doing violence. When you're doing violence for money, what you've got to do, you've got to shut down every emotion, every feeling, everything about it, and it's just that bit of work to be done. And that's what he would have practised while he was in prison, is shutting off emotion. You've got to be able to shut off emotion, otherwise you couldn't do it. After murdering the McSwans, Haig forged their signatures and made people believe they'd emigrated to America. He then successfully sold off their assets, allowing him to lead the lifestyle he aspired to. Nobody questioned the young charmer, and he made himself just over £100,000 in today's money. So now he's a wealthy man. He, he was, for a period of some three years, he lived off the McSwan money, uh, and it amounted to several thousands of pounds, which in today's money we think was probably about £100,000. And he had a wonderful life for about three years. This was just what he was aiming at. This was the lifestyle he'd been seeking from the beginning, and he had achieved it. Haig was finally living the lifestyle he craved, staying in exclusive hotels, buying expensive cars, and entertaining the upper classes. With no other income, his fortune quickly began to disappear. He should have been able to survive comfortably on the money that he got, but he squandered it, didn't he? 
Yeah, because easy come, easy go. He's got £8,000 this time and he's spent that. Well, next time he'll get £12,000. There's a recklessness to his behaviour. It's not that he's complacent. It's more that um, once he hasn't been caught, once that metaphoric hand on the shoulder didn't appear, he begins to feel himself quite invincible. I suppose once you've got away with one murder, and then a second, then a third. How do you reverse? How do you stop that behavior? Living the high life, Haig's greed meant he needed to find another victim and kill again. I'm Fred Dynage, and I'm investigating the crimes of John George Haig, the man known as the acid bath murderer. In 1946, he'd killed the three members of the McSwan family and disposed of their bodies in acid. Their murders had netted him a small fortune, but the money began to disappear almost as quickly as his victims had. Haig's very interesting as a serial killer. He's not typical by any means. For one, he's killing a very different group of people. He's killing wealthy, middle-class, upper-middle-class people, people who are going to be missed, because that's not the common pattern of serial killing in Britain. By 1947, the thousands Haig had made from killing the McSwans had been blown on his lavish lifestyle. Overdrawn and being chased by creditors, he knew what he had to do. Haig needed to find new victims, but he had another problem to deal with first. He no longer rented the workshop in London where he'd carried out his previous killings. He was looking for a new quiet location. That's exactly what he found here at Leopold Road in Crawley. He rented the workshop and moved his acid, raincoat, gloves and gas mask into his new centre of operations. Now, Haig needed to find particular types of victims to charm. They had to be wealthy and, crucially, the sort of people who wouldn't be missed. I mean, you've done time with fraudsters. You've known a lot of fraudsters. Yeah. What's the technique that someone like Haig uses to, if you like, con his victims? It's charm. Um, also, it's, I, I talked to a famous fraudster once, a con man, and he was probably one of the best in the world when I was in, in, in prison. And he, millions of pounds was involved. And he said, you can only con a greedy person. He fed their ego. And, and when you're talking about con men, con men have got massive egos themselves. They really think that, that they can con the world. And so to him, he was feeding them the food they wanted. I, he was stroking their ego and in return, he was robbing them. Haig answered an ad for the sale of a house in London. He offered the wealthy owners, the Hendersons, more than the asking price, telling them it was undervalued. He, he managed to get himself into the company of a very fashionable London couple named the Hendersons, Archie Henderson and Rose Henderson. They were quite wealthy, they owned a block of flats and they owned a small shop called the Dolls Hospital in West London. And Haig considered these to be ideal victims uh, for, for the acid bath and for him to take over their lifestyles. He simply is very good at trying to identify suitable victims to bump off whom he will be able to use to gain more and more income. Haig led Archie Henderson to believe that he was a successful businessman with an engineering company in Crawley. He proposed a joint venture, and Henderson agreed to visit Haig's site on Leopold Road. 
On the 12th of February 1948, John Haig brought Archie Henderson to see his new workshop here in Crawley. They went inside the workshop and when the unsuspecting Henderson turned his back, Haig produced a revolver and shot him in the head. The revolver had actually belonged to Henderson himself and Haig had stolen it from the Henderson's flat. Uh, he taught himself how that to use nice. it. <laughs> and within a, a, a second or two, Jeez. he had shot Henderson dead. He then went back to the Metropole Hotel to tell Rose Henderson that her husband had been taken ill in Crawley and would she come up to see him. And without any question at all, she jumped into the car and was brought up to Crawley, supposedly to have a reunion with her husband. Uh, but within a few seconds of her walking into the workshop, she was shot dead too. And for the second time in his career, he had two oil drums standing side by side, ready to get rid of a husband and wife. As with his other victims, Haig placed the bodies in the oil drums. He then pumped in sulfuric acid. He went away for the weekend, and when he returned, he was going to pour away the sludge that had formed. But there was a problem. The basement in London had a convenient drain down which he could dispose of the, uh, the residue of the bodies. When he moved to Leopold Road in Crawley, there was no drain. And he had to wheel the drums out of the workshop into the, the yard. And it was a builder's yard, but it was full of rubble. And he found a nice corner where he could empty the drums uh, into the rubble. Wow. It's been an hour since Professor Wilson began his experiment to replicate how Haig used sulfuric acid to liquefy his victims' bodies. A murderer, if he's organised and successful, gets rid of the body. He hides the body, he buries the body. In Haig's case, he wants to completely obliterate the body. Now, that's partly because Haig misunderstands this legal term called corpus delicti, which means the body of evidence. Haig misunderstands this and thinks if there's no body, as in the body of evidence, he can't be charged. But of course, that's his misunderstanding of that phrase corpus delicti, which simply means that there's evidence, a body of evidence, to be able to convict the culprit. And what should happen to this piece of chicken is what did happen. To Haig's victims. Yes, well, it's going to burn. This is the, the this is the process of how the, the body fat will disappear. But remember, this is part of Haig's misunderstanding of the experiment. Haig thinks everything is going to disappear. There's going to be literally nothing left. Whereas in fact, there is going to be a residue, and it's that residue that's going to be very important in bringing Haig to justice. For now, Haig was still at large. He'd pocketed over £200,000 in today's money from the Henderson murders, making people believe they'd emigrated to South Africa. Once again, he's in the money, and once again, he managed to spend the money. Yes, he made an, another nice nest egg out of the, uh, the Henderson's money, but whereas the McSwan money lasted three years, the Henderson money only lasted a year, as if his spending had accelerated at quite a rate. And he's in the red yet again in 1949 and looking for another victim for the acid bath at Crawley. Haig had been a permanent resident at the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington for several years. Surrounded by a variety of wealthy targets, he just had to choose his next victim. 
Flossie Franklin and her friend Sally were regular visitors to the hotel. Their nephew, Richard Franklin, remembers how they came face to face with the killer. Tell us about your aunts and their relationship with the Onslow Court. Well, my aunt, Irene, known as Flossie, and Sally were very typical uh, country uh, women. They would come up to London once a fortnight to do their shopping at Harrods, as you do, and have their hair done, and they would spend the weekend at the Onslow Court Hotel, which was very comfortable. They could feel at home, and the sort of people who went there were similar people, probably people who were living on family trusts. But, um, I mean, it is significant, this, because uh, the, the money that they would have was probably not as much as they would like to have had. So I think that if a very smooth operator comes along and uh, chats them up and tells them about his uh, wonderful business opportunity, and I think they might have been thought it was, well, that's rather, rather exciting. Perhaps we can improve our income a little bit. Did your aunt ever say to you that she'd had conversations with him? Oh, yes. Yes, he used to sit down and have tea with them. He was charming. Oh, wow. He would go around and obviously he was sussing out the field. If serial killers had horns on their heads, if they looked like the devil, you would avoid them. But of course, if they're charming, if they're plausible, if they're entertaining, then of course you're going to trust them a lot more and they can gain access to you to potentially become their next victim. Your aunt could easily have been, for all we know, his next victim. Oh, I think she undoubtedly was on the list. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, uh, if he'd had tea with her once, with them once, and thought they were sort of not what he was looking for, he wouldn't have bothered to have tea with them again. Um, and I think they had quite a lot of truck with him. Would your aunt, do you think, had he persisted in, for want of a better word, chatting her up, yes. had he persisted, would she have been gullible enough, do you think, to Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I think so. My aunt would rush into anything. She would be easily duped. I think if it had got to an actual invitation to go to Sussex, I think my aunt would have said, oh, how lovely, yes, shall we drive in your car or mine? Bless her, she was well-named as Flossie. I think she, she would have been, you know, sort of upended into the, into the barrel of, of acid straight away. Oh, wow. Richard Franklin's aunt appears to have had a lucky escape, but the same can't be said for another resident of the Onslow Hotel, Mrs Olive Durand-Deacon. Even these names sound wonderful, don't they, Fred? The Onslow Court Hotel, Mrs Durand-Deacon. You can tell the kind of character that Haig is uh, attacking. Haig managed to sit at the same table as her in the dining room, and they got chatting about all sorts of things. Um, he must have discovered that she had quite a nice little uh, nest egg tucked away in the bank. In fact, she had £36,000 worth of stocks and shares. Haig befriended Mrs Duran Deacon and over several dinners, she explained about her ambition to start a cosmetics business producing false nails. It was music to the fraudster's ears. They agreed to become business partners and Haig suggested she visited his premises in Leopold Road. Uh -oh. What do you suppose her reaction would have been? <laughs> you don't want to go there. the door to this ramshackle premises. She must have been pretty horrified and very surprised because on that day, it was a Friday in February 1949, she was dressed in her best fur coat. She had her best jewellery on, uh, a lovely handbag, 
rings on her fingers and a pearl necklace round her neck. And Haig led her to this very grimy workshop in a builder's yard in Crawley. And it was a very stark place. Mrs Duran Deacon didn't have much time to take in the surroundings. Haig led her to a workbench to show her some plans. With her head lowered, he pulled his revolver from under the counter and placed it on the back of her head. He shot her dead with one single bullet. I'm Fred Dynage and I'm investigating the real motive behind the horrific murders carried out by John George Haig, the acid bath murderer. His thirst for money compelled him to kill six people. He thought he'd never be caught if he disposed of his victims' bodies in acid. Haig's sixth victim had been a wealthy widow, Olive Duran Deacon, a fellow resident of the luxurious Onslow Court Hotel. He's running out of control, Fred. He doesn't know how to put the brakes on, nor does he, I think, want to put the brakes on. He, once he's on this journey, he's going to continue on this journey until he's actually stopped. Haig had to dispose of Mrs. Duran Deacon's body, as with his previous victims, he placed her corpse into a bath of acid. Once she was in the drum, um, he took a tea break. He came out of the yard, he walked up the Ifield Road, and he went to a cafe called the Ancient Priors, and he ordered himself poached eggs on toast, um, and he had a long, friendly chat with the proprietor of the cafe, as if nothing had happened. Um, now, how and then, they? within half an hour, he had strolled back to the workshop to carry out the disposal of Mrs. Duran Deacon. Haig poured the remains of the acid into a corner of his yard. He then returned to the Onslow Court Hotel to cover his tracks. However, he hadn't accounted for the fact that, unlike his previous victims, Mrs. Duran Deacon would be missed. For a couple of days, he looked as though he'd got away with it. But in fact, whereas no one had reported the other five people missing, uh, two days after Mrs. Duran Deacon had failed to return to the Onslow Court Hotel, her best friend, a Miss Constance Lane, decided that she would go to Chelsea Police to report her as a missing person. The police visited the Onslow Court Hotel to conduct inquiries. One officer felt that 39-year-old Haig was out of place amongst the elderly residents. Checks revealed that Haig had a criminal record for fraud, and the police started to look into the business activities of this supposed gentleman. The police quickly discovered Haig's workshop here in Crawley, but nothing could have prepared them for what they found. It was like a scene from a Hammer horror movie. On the hunt to find evidence that would incriminate Haig, Detective Sergeant Pat Heslin forced entry into the Leopold Road workshop. Heslin walked straight into Haig's workshop of death and discovered all his implements. Heslin recovered the revolver and the bullets. He also recovered a small little bit of paper. It was the receipt for a dry cleaning shop in Rygate. He went there on the Sunday and he recovered a fur coat. It was the fur coat belonging to Mrs. Duran Deacon. Haig realised that the game was up at that point, so he changed his tack completely and he decided to make a confession. He confessed to killing Mrs. Duran Deacon. But then to the, the astonishment of the police, he began telling them all about the other five killings and the disposals. But he thought 
that they couldn't touch him. Haig believed the acid had dissolved his victims and if the police couldn't find a body, then there were no legal grounds to convict him. He was wrong on both counts. Our experiment with Professor Wilson reveals the error that brought Haig to justice. So, David, is our chicken after just two hours in the sulfuric acid? We can see that the chicken is obviously diluted inside. Some of the body fats have been burnt off. There's a change in color. And we used another piece of chicken in sulfuric acid, which has been diluting for uh, one day. And here's the result. It's this sludge, this type of sludge, though, that's going to be the beginning of his downfall in relation to Mrs. Duran Deacon. One of Britain's leading forensic pathologists, Professor Keith Simpson, was brought in to examine Haig's premises. In the corner of the yard, he discovered 28 pounds of human body fat, part of a human foot, and a set of dentures which were shown to belong to Mrs. Duran Deacon. Haig became desperate. He had one last con up his sleeve he believed might save him from the gallows, a plea of insanity. Haig claimed that all his crimes had been committed to satisfy a lust for blood. Haig put this blood drinking claim into his statement at a very early stage. Um, so if he was doing it, he was acting very cleverly indeed. But I think he was putting it in to perhaps try and show that he was insane. And in fact, that was the defence that he uh, was given at his trial, that he was insane and therefore shouldn't hang. In July 1949, Haig's trial for murder began at Lewis Crown Court. Now, such a sinister set of killings had generated huge public interest, and the streets outside were packed with people, curious to take a look at the man the press had labelled the vampire. Vernon Evershed remembers the trial as if it were yesterday. If you hadn't have known what he'd done, was he the sort of bloke you could have... Passed in the street. Yes. Yes. He could, be, could have been a bank manager. That's what he looked like. Immaculate. Vernon was a copy boy working for the local newspaper. He got to experience the atmosphere of a trial that remarkably only lasted for three days. There was a lot more interest in that sort of case because, bearing in mind there's no TV, it made it a sensational story and was the, was the talk of the day. People talked about it at work. What's happened today, you know? They've brought the oil drums in today and all this sort of business. There were 33 witnesses. Some of them virtually only said one or two words like yes or no. You know, did you see Mrs. Dewar and Deacon come back into the hotel? No. During the trial, Haig's defence team didn't deny the murders. Instead, they tried to portray their man as being mentally ill and therefore unable to fully appreciate the morality of his acts. And his claims, Haig's claims that there were other victims who he'd killed because he wanted to drink their blood. Yeah, well, there was no, there was no other circumstantial evidence and the police never followed those up anyway. Blood drinking was... Um, another part of the ploy because of the, the, the fact that uh, one of the doctors said in between the uh, disposing of Mrs. Stewart and Deacon, he went to the Jolt Hotel in Crawley and had poached eggs on toast and then came back and had a pint of blood. The doctor said there's no way that would be possible without him absolutely, um, you know, vomiting and being ill and, 
you know, this was another sort of figment of his imagination. Well, he was a psychopath, wasn't he? He was, he was cleverly criminal. It took the jury just 15 minutes to come to a conclusion. Haig was found minutes. guilty yeah. and sentenced wow. to death. There was a, almost a sort of, I can't remember clapping or anything, but there was a, a sense of um, just, uh, justice that will be done, you know, when, uh, when the sentence of death was pronounced. They said to him after he was sentenced, have you anything to say? And all he said was nothing at all. The feeling was he deserved all he was going to get. From Wandsworth Prison, Haig wrote letters to his family. There were no signs of remorse for his victims. Well, in fact, the insanity plea was never going to be really successful, was it? Because we know that he killed for money. He was quite careful about trying to cover his tracks. Indeed, we never discovered the Hendersons that he murdered. We never discovered the McSwans whom he murdered. And clearly, he was benefiting financially from what he was doing. On the 10th of August, 1949, John George Haig was marched the 15 steps to the hangman's noose. In the time it's taken me to recount this story, the acid bath murderer was dead. In the eyes of the law, justice had been served. If he could look down now, and he might be, and see us talking about him, how would he feel about that? He'd love it. Every serial killer I've worked with loves their public image, loves their media, the media attention they're able to generate. I think he'd be glorying in, in all the uh, adulation that still surrounds him. I mean, we're talking about a case now that happened in 1949, and yet here we are still talking about this extraordinary man, and I think he would take a great deal of delight about that. Even though we're talking about Haig, we're also talking about the circumstances that allows Haig to kill. We're talking about the victims of Haig. We're talking about those people who really matter. We're talking about the circumstances that some people can use to commit murder. And that, to me, is far more important rather than giving celebrity to the likes of Haig, even though Haig would have loved the celebrity. I set out to discover what could make a man murder six people and dispose of their bodies in such a callous manner. From the evidence I've heard, he was a cold-hearted killer, a man with no conscience who would do whatever it took to make money and satisfy his aspirations to live the high life. For John George Haig, though, his crimes didn't pay. That is a serious story, man. You know what's so wild? I have a friend that's named John George. So that's so crazy that we watched. Oh, really? Yeah, he's one of my best friends from like high school and like middle school and stuff. So yeah, it's funny as hell. Wow. Well, yeah, that's a serious story. What'd you think, man? Uh, um, he was obviously. I liked what that person said earlier in the the video. He was he was a psychopath. But he was cleverly, what was that? He was cleverly, um, he was cleverly, cleverly a psychopath. Like, just like, obviously, obviously he didn't put a lot of thought through 
with the acid and stuff like that. And my 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 you get a lot I'm more trying, than what we think. Well, the what I'm trying to understand, he didn't see all those bits and pieces going in the corner. Well, like the, yeah, I know. And the foot, the teeth. Yeah. Um, uh, he was just so desperate for money and wanting to live the high life. I, I don't even think he really cared. Uh, yeah. What what was still there and what wasn't, but um, for him to think that, you know, if they can't find the bodies, they can't charge them. Well, that was just a ridiculous, that's just ridiculous, you know, yeah. but at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, they got him, they nailed him, they hung him, and that's <laughs> the way it should be, to be honest. Um, yeah. But it was cool. It was really an interesting story, you know, and, and, uh, I would, I would, I would have liked to known a little more about his childhood, other than he was able to forge uh, his teacher's signatures and his yeah. parents. I would have liked to known a little bit more, but maybe they didn't have anything. So, yeah. but uh, I found it really cool that there was somebody that was actually there when it happened, and then, then to talk to somebody that aunt, his aunt could have been. One of his victims. What are the odds? Like, can you yeah. imagine being that aunt and being like, like I talked to him. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. oh my god. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. Was there a reason why it didn't happen with with that man? Uh, I think it was because he was looking for victims. They said that he was like that weren't going to be missed. So I think that they right. realized that she had a family, and he realized all that that it wasn't going to be worth it. Probably didn't appeal to her. I mean, he was a very, this is the one thing I try to do, like, especially with certain serial killers like this, I try to stay neutral about the whole subject because it's very fascinating on a human behavior level, how much this man put thought into this in the way that he tried, even though he didn't put so much thought into it, but he put enough where he went to the library in jail to find out how to start working with this acid in the first place, which, I mean, the things he went through just to figure out how to use the acids with the mics and stuff, like. How do you have that and not get caught in a jail of smell? Like with the smell and everything, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah, just- yeah. So- I w- I'd I'd love to see this turned into a movie. Oh, one hundred percent. I think it. I think this would be a really really cool movie. Yeah. Hmm. Give me ideas, like Matt says. Right. I'd love to see this in the movie. I guess the Chris was saying earlier. This was actually, what did he say earlier? Um, this was on the radio back in the 50s. It was a, uh, let me find it here. Um, where was it? Uh, okay. The Hague case was uh, dramatized in the episode The Jar of Acid on the 1951 radio series The Black Museum. So they put it into a radio series, but I'd love to see, I'd love to see this turned into a into a film. I yeah. think it'd be really, really super cool. Oh, definitely. And, and um, yeah, I wonder who he, I wonder who could play him. Right. Getting too many ideas now. Yeah, yeah, but no, that was great. That was great, though. That I really enjoyed that one. Uh, yeah. There's your. Uh, true documentary documentary compared to last week's where it was actually yeah. a story about a couple of victims but yeah um, no i loved it i loved everything about it and um um yeah on to the next
on to, the, on to the next. Absolutely. I want to thank everybody that came in the room tonight. And if you are watching, if you watch the replay of this, you didn't get to see it live, you watched the replay, you can do us a solid, share it out for us. All it takes is once, give us give us a like. And uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And obviously during the week, uh, we will be putting up clips of this of this show. And I would like to also thank uh, the people listening on, on the podcast uh, side yeah. of things. We don't thank them enough. And if you're interested in seeing this video, come over to Parapost Network Central and uh, watch watch the video. It, it was pretty cool. It was good that they had pictures and stuff like that as well. That was uh, that was really cool. Now, was that picture of the gas mask standing in the room? Was that really him, or was that? It might have been. I mean, it might have been a, like a redrawing. I don't know. It could have been him. I'm yeah. not sure. That's weird. It was weird to see though, because like he had a very specific getup. Like I was saying, he was very sophisticated for his age. Like you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of scary cool. to think to be that psycho and yeah. sophisticated. So. Yeah, I I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. But thank you guys so much for tuning in. My name is AJ Capasso. This has been Crime Documentaries. Again, like Brian said, follow us on Spotify, on Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the major platforms you can think of. We are on at Crime Documentaries. We also are live Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Um, on Parapost Network Central on Facebook. You can find us. So head over to Parapost Network Central. and We're enjoy. also on Talking with the Source. We're also on Talking with the Source. Didn't even get to finish. You're already doing it. So no. please. No, no. I want you to finish this one off. <laughs> well, thank you again, everyone. And uh, not much left to say except case closed.